Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being all we need. Thank you for being all sufficient for all our needs. Help us really to realize that in every situation we face. We lift up the people of Ukraine and the Russian soldiers, Lord. We lift them all up to you and ask for you to be moving in their lives and comforting and being with those who are being hospitable to the refugees and providing for their needs. Lord, uh, just we ask that, that this cease as soon as possible. Lord. And Lord, this morning, um, as we open your word, as, as we always do, we invite your Holy Spirit, Lord, to help us to hear, to help us to receive, help us understand the word that you're teaching us. So be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And welcome to the guests that are with us this morning. Good to have you. We always appreciate um, those who stop on their vacation to, to come and worship. We know that that means that you're serious about the Lord, that you would take time on your vacation. So it's our blessing to have you with us. Um, before the sermon, I want to just briefly mention, we're going to start going through every Sunday different uh, mission works that we support because we, I think there's 15 on our list of missions that we help. Um, we don't fund them fully, but we uh, fund them in part, except for uh, one of the missions, which is Mumbai. Um, Mumbai is one of the largest cities in India. Um, if you're looking at that kind of upward, there looks like there's a little mouth on the left-hand side. Mumbai's in that area. There's six million people in the slums alone in Mumbai. It's huge, huge city. Um, I've been there a number of times, and we have a full-time missionary there. He's a local. His name is P.T. Babu. He and his wife, and sometimes his son assist them. Um, Jerry is his son's name. And they have planted, so far they've planted, uh, I think they're up to 13 churches now. Uh, he's in, he just, uh, he's such a man of faith. It just blows me away. Um, I had the privilege of meeting him a couple times. And one time, uh, his English isn't real well, but he speaks a number of, of the local languages, including Marathi, which is the language in Mumbai. And um, he takes a team out every morning. He comes to the mission center, uh, which is Dr. Matai's sister-in-law's house. And he fills his backpack full of Marathi Bibles. He goes out all day until it gets dark, passing out Bibles to people who are interested. He's, he does a Bible study with a group of swamis because they're interested in who Jesus is. He's led a number of them to the Lord. Um, he... he introduced me to uh, several women. He said, these, these women used to have AIDS. And I said, what do you mean used to have? He said, we prayed for them, and they've been healed, and they've been confirmed that they no longer have AIDS. And he goes to a cancer center, and they really like him because frequently um, the people that he prays for are healed and, and leave the cancer center. So it, it's not only the evangelism and planning the churches, it's also that, that ministry he has just one-on-one -on -one, um, 
praying for people, leading people to Christ. And it's, he's, it's, it's, I, I'm just blown away by how hard and how diligently he goes out to share the gospel because he's just every day, all day. <laughs> and he has a team of guys that he's led to the Lord that have volunteered to help him. Um, the churches that he's planted all have uh, good pastors. I got to attend a couple of them, and most of them are in the slums. And so, um, and the majority of the congregation are are girls, young women, because they're the men are all employed or trying to make a living. And so uh, they sing and praise God and worship for an hour on end and. And then they hear a good, solid teaching from God's word. So it's just amazing what they do. The other part of um, the India mission is more down in the south, in the southern state, uh, Kerala. We, there's a uh, Bible college. It's a three-year Bible college. All the professors have PhDs. They, um, they teach the students from all over India. They basically pay what they can afford. Um, so for some people, it's free. Um, others that can pay a little bit, pay a little bit. Um, and when I was, I've been there five or six times, the students buy paper by the sheet. You know, they don't buy a ream of paper like we do because they can't afford to. They buy it by the sheet from the local stationery place. And, uh, but they're excited about learning the gospel and being really established in the faith to go back to their hometowns, which are all over India. They come from all the different states to plan a, plan a church. So um, they also have a children's home. Um, they've had to shut it down during COVID um, because they didn't want all the people together. So they had to find places for the individual kids. Some of them could go be with their mother and the reason the mother puts them in the home is usually the husband's an alcoholic or has deserted them and she has to work full time and can't take care of her child. So there's usually about um, 100 to 130 children in the children's home. And uh, uh, it's, it's amazing how they care for them. And in the morning, I hear them like it's 5.30. I hear them singing, praising God. They have songs that they sing. And then I hear them praying you know, they all take take turns praying. And I hear, you know, I can't understand. Uh, I'm trying to think of the language down there. Uh, it's not coming to mind. But anyway, in their local language, I hear them praying, no, 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 Pastor Paul. No, no, no. I just go, oh, my gosh. It just breaks your heart, you know, that all these little kids are praying for you. It's uh, it's awesome. Anyway, that's, that's one of our missions that... Um, we're really blessed to support. They are going, it looks like they're gonna be able to open up the school again and um, the uh, children's home in June, uh, which is the beginning of their school year there. So be praying for them, be praying for P.T. Babu. He, um, uh, during the rainy season, which is June, um, a lot of times he can't live in his home because it floods. And so he has to wait till the water goes down to get back into the place that he lives. And so he just has to find other places, sometimes in the slums, you know, just a little cardboard and a piece of corrugated steel over the top of you. Well, what a faithful brother. Pray for him, his wife, and his son Jerry as they minister in the city of Mumbai. And for the, for the professors and uh, directors there at the, at the Bible College. I appreciate that.
Today we're in 1 Corinthians 7, 25 to 40. Um, in, in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this? If you're a guest with us, we just work our way through the scriptures. So you happen to have come at the time we're at this particular passage. So if you're struggling about whether to marry or not to marry, you're the right person at the right time. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 7, 25 to 40. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not re rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do so as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but have, having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries has his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if the husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So, this passage is probably a response um, to a letter that Paul received from the Corinthians asking about single believers. You know, earlier in, in the, this letter, we, we noticed that he said that he was responding to a letter. So this is probably one of the issues also that he's responding to. While the Greek and Jewish cultures put an emphasis on marriage and having children, Corinth was a city where everyone was trying to make a name for themselves. And sometimes remaining single let, allowed you to be freer to, to rise up in the social ranking there. So the Corinthians were pulled both ways. Um, and, the, and they had the added temptation of the immorality in that city, which it was famous for. So should they marry? Should married couples separate and just live for the Lord? 
what was the appropriate response to what was happening in that culture and, the, and the, what was best for the individual's walk with the Lord. Paul's already said in the previous passage, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. How he addresses single people is particularly relevant in our day because this is the first time in American, our age right now is the first time in American history where there's more single people in our population than married people. And it's partly because, well, um, we're living longer. The culture's made it easier for single women to live alone. But it's also in many cases due to a selfish desire to live for yourself. Um, my wife's from Japan, so we're connected with the culture there. And they have the problem of a shrinking uh, Japanese population because a lot of women don't want to marry. Why would I have to take care of a husband? I want to travel. I want to see the world. So they live with their parents, and they have a job, and they save up their money, and they can do all kinds of things because they're on their own. All their money is for themselves. So it's a, it's, but that in turn has created a, a, a population problem. So they're having to import a lot of labor from Southeast Asia. Verse 25 again, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So there's no command in scripture or word from the Holy Spirit regarding the, the, their current marital situation. But generally speaking, we see in the beginning of God's word in Genesis that there is a command for people to multiply, have children, bring them up in the Lord. And as we see in the next verse, conditions in the culture in Corinth had added some new factors that needed to be considered. So Paul is giving his opinion to singles and to those who were promised in marriage to one another. However, he says, the Lord's mercy has made him a trustworthy source. He ends the passage this, that we just read by saying he has the spirit of God. So he's saying that, basically saying, now God doesn't command this, but I think my words are, I believe my words are inspired. Verse 26 and 27, I think in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, within about a little over a decade after Paul wrote this letter, uh, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. Thousands upon thousands of Jews would be crucified in the streets. Most of the Christians would flee out of Jerusalem um, up the Arnon Valley, which is just south of the Sea of Galilee, uh, up towards Pella. There's caves along that canyon where many people think that's where Christians hid out during this time because there was a water source below them. Um, and it's, it's going to, it was going to be a difficult time, and persecution would become severe because we'd have the persecution under Nero and then under Emperor Domitian. So to be caring for a spouse or to have children to protect would make it even more difficult. In fact, Jesus said something about this. He said, woe to those women who are, have nursing infants in that day because it, 
It was going to be a horrific time that they were going to go through. So Paul tells them, remain as you are. In other words, if you're married, don't desert your wife or your husband. If you're single, don't seek a wife or a husband. Maybe we can get a little feel for what they were facing when we think of what Christians are enduring in Iran. I met a brother from Iran. He has dual citizenships, U.S., Iranian. And he and his wife are a leader of a big underground church movement. And he was sharing with me that they, they knew that the secret police someday would break through the door, arrest them, um, and very possibly uh, violate his wife um, right in his presence. That was a common, they, they knew that was fairly common. And so they had to decide, what do we do? What is the Christian response in a situation like that? Um, I can know what my natural inclination would be. But they together decided their bodies belong to the Lord. And therefore, they will give their bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord, that they wouldn't resist them. And so, I mean, making a kind of decision like that, oh my goodness, we can't imagine it. And yet, that's something similar, I think, to what the Corinthians were facing, this persecution that was going to come and how hard it would be if you were married, if you had children, um, to go through it. When there's persecution, which is a common response to Christian love and the Christian message of salvation, there's going to be suffering and intimidation. In Timothy, it tells us that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So better to face it alone and not, not to be worried about a spouse or children. You know, what, what are the Ukrainians going through right now? Some of you have watched the news or interviews with individuals. Husbands who stay behind are worried if their wife or children made it out of the country. Women that are out of the country are worried if their husband's still living or not. Um, it just makes it extremely difficult. Verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. It'd be easier to be single, but it is no sin to marry. It just gives you more things in the world to be concerned about. That generation was gonna be a very difficult time for families. But in any age, marriage has its difficulties. And all married couples said, amen, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's not a piece of cake, but at the same time, we learn and grow through our difficulties in marriage. In every decision, a married person considers their spouse. Even when all is calm, think of what Sunday morning is like for a church-going family. Those of you who've raised kids and brought them to church know what I'm talking about. You know, you have a few kids, you got to feed them, you got to get them dressed for church, they're fighting, one of them's hiding, you can't figure out where they are, you finally get to church late, you find a place in the pew, they're arguing, be quiet, wait till children's church, you know. And then, you know, after church, they're, I want to go to McDonald's, you know. I mean, it's, it goes on and on. Whereas the single person gets up, pray, you know, they get ready for church, 
They come to church, they find a friend, they have fellowship afterwards. Hey, you want to go for lunch and talk about the sermon? You know, it's just so much easier. Now, I'm not saying don't have children. Children are a joy. And seeing your kids and your grandkids come to Christ is, there's nothing greater. Ah, uh, yeah. Verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who re rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Many Christians would die in that coming persecution. Life is short. Whether the Lord returns in our lifetime or we live a full life, life is short. Compared to eternity, life is extremely brief. Focus on what matters eternally. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done through Christ will last. Amen? Eternity is forever. Think about that. Where should you be investing our moment of time here on earth? What should be our priority in our various occupations? Is our priority to make money or to glorify God? Maintain that mindset of the brevity of life and the importance of investing in your eternal future is commended to us in a number of scriptures. I'll just read a couple one of my favorites is Colossians 3, 1 to 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And James 4, 14 I think many of you are familiar with, yet you do not know what, what, what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Jesus warned us that where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. If the things of this world are our treasure, money, possessions, the esteem of man, then our heart's going to be in the world. If our treasure is Jesus, then our heart is set on eternity with him. When I hear people say that there's so much more I want to experience in this world before I die, I know they need a greater revelation of the love of Christ. Because only then can we say, come Lord Jesus. In these verses, Paul is recommending a really radical mindset. It's to live with Jesus first in everything we do. Instead of putting spouse first, put Jesus first. Now that doesn't mean not to love and meet one another's needs. For Paul already insisted that we do that in chapter 7 verse 3 and in Ephesians 5.33. But rather that God's will be our priority in all our circumstances. There's a time to mourn and rejoice, but even those deep emotions should be overridden by the will of God in that present moment. Our possessions belong to God. Our dealings with the world can't take first place. 
because the present form of this world is passing away. You know, we live in such a time of peace here in the USA, but for most of world history, people live with an understanding that their circumstances could change in a moment. Their crops could fail or be destroyed by weather or marauders. Illness could disable you or wipe out your village. You know, with Russia putting the nuclear forces on high alert, our uncertainty about tomorrow should be real to us. And yet, if we're in Christ, what should matter is if we are being faithful to God in every moment. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, that, that's a, an interesting word in Greek, present form. It's the Greek word schema, and we get our word schematics from it. Greeks used the word for a stage setting. You know, when you're going to do a drama, a play or something, somebody builds the set behind them that sets, sets the stage for where they're in, it's buildings or trees or whatever. So that word, the present form, is literally a stage set. Sometimes they used it for the mask that they'd put over when they played different characters. It went up before the play, and it went down when the play was over. That's the other mindset we need. Everything in this world, other than the souls of men and women, is just a temporary stage set. Now you kind of get the idea where Shakespeare got his quote from, his saying, all the world is a stage, right? We're actors in it. That came from the Bible, the Greek version of the Bible. But imagine one of the actors falling in love with the set and wanting to live the rest of his life on the set. You'd think he's a little crazy, right? And that's what we do, right? When we fall in love with this world, we're falling in love with a set that is going to pass away, that's going to be taken down. I'm thankful for my home, for these beautiful mountains around us, the forests, the magnificent thunder showers in the summer, but I know it's all here for just a moment of time. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming wherein dwells righteousness. There's a humorous phrase I like to use to drive the point home. You never see a hearse followed by a U-Haul. You know, many cultures have buried goods with their departed and they end up in a museum, not in heaven. Verse 32 to 34, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I want you to be free from anxieties. I like that. Don't you like that? I want to be free from anxieties. It's a great expression. But Paul's bringing us a reality check. When we fall in love, or think we are, we get all starry-eyed and can only think of how wonderful it will be to get married to our dream spouse. But what Paul is warning us of is a matter of divided focus. A single person in Christ can have a more complete focus on the Lord and his will and a love relationship with him. 
the married person will have to divide his or her focus between the Lord and the needs of their spouse. Now, on the other hand, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that marriage is a picture of our relationship with the Lord. We can learn so much about our relationship with Jesus through the things we experience in marriage. And as he wrote earlier, it's better to marry than to burn. Some people have the gift of singleness, but it's rare. This was an unusual stance that Paul was teaching, for the Greek and Jewish idea was that marriage is always best. But like Jesus, Paul was free from the traditions of men. He could see that since the Messiah had come, the most important thing was a relationship with him and telling others about him. Everything adjusts in priority when Jesus comes into our lives. It's not that we don't have a job or pleasures, but just that they decrease in priority when we let Jesus take first place. Now, uh, I there's an expression here that I need to explain. The phrase holy in body and spirit does not mean that the single woman is holier than a married person because she does not have sex. A lot of people, in, in, when they read this, they interpret it that way. And that idea comes from our twisted culture thinking all sex is dirty when it's really a gift of God when it's within the boundaries of marriage. But this expression in that time, body and spirit, meant everything in life. Our, our inner being and our outer being. That's simply what's being said there. Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul was not laying a law upon them, but rather suggesting these things so that those so gifted could be solely devoted to the Lord and not have the anxiety about a spouse during the persecution that was coming. But it's also for the benefit of those who have the gift of being single under any and all conditions. Undivided devotion to the Lord is a wonderful thing and more easily attained when you're single. He is warning them to think soberly and honesty, honestly about how life will change when a person marries. Verse 36, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, and his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. So Paul recognizes our situation that the power of our hormones is real. And for most people, it's better to avoid temptation by going ahead with marriage. It's not wrong to marry. Marriage should not be discouraged nor should it be encouraged without soberly thinking how one's life will change. That's why premarital counseling is so important. Paul's trying to strike a balance. While he sees celibacy has more opportunities to be fully devoted to the Lord, marriage is God's design and even one of his first commands. Verse 37, but whoever is firmly established in his heart being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So even though betrothed, which is betrothal, it's hard for us to understand because we don't have anything like it in our culture. We say engagement, but it, 
betrothal was, the deal was sealed. You, you, you didn't back out. You had to be divorced if you wanted to end the betrothal. So it was a, a little more, it was much more binding than engagement. I wonder if this was a specific question from the Corinthians. It seems so strange to our ears. You're betrothed, but you're not going to consummate the marriage. I never witnessed this, but that's probably because of our culture. The only example I can think of is Francis of Assisi and Claire. If, you've ever, if you haven't watched the movie Brother Son, it's just a wonderful movie. Um, both of them had a great passion for Christ and a respect for each other's walk with God. So they worked together for God's glory rather than to marry. Verse 38, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Marriage is good. The gift of celibacy is even better if one has been given that gift and is passionate about devoting their life entirely to the Lord. Keep in mind, that the Catholic Church, making this a rule for all their priests, ignored the fact that the person had to have their desire under control and be called to that lifestyle. The result has been all the abuse and scandals that have been revealed. Verse 39 and 40, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. So in that day, widows had no way to earn a living. And that's why it would be normal for them to seek a new spouse. But Paul says that if that's the case, she needs to marry only a Christian brother. But he believes that she'll be happier if she can stay single. Paul believes this was the instruction of the Holy Spirit, and surely he prayed over his answer to the churches. The whole passage is nuanced by three phrases. In view of the present distress, that's verse 26. The appointed time has grown very short, verse 29. And the present form of this world is passing away, verse 31. In some ways, those phrases apply to that specific time and situation. And yet, in other ways, they apply to any age. We can see for certain that what Paul is implying is that it's better to be single to devote yourself entirely to the Lord if you have that gift of celibacy, that is, to have your desires under control. But it's also better to marry than to live with smoldering passion, he taught. It's better to marry to avoid sexual immoralities, chapter 7, verse 2. Married or single, the focus of our lives should not be this passing stage set. It should be on that which is eternal. We tend to denigrate single people as if somehow not marrying is a failure in life. On the other hand, our culture puts down marriage as if it were enslavement to be liberated from. Paul has shown us that both married life and being single are good and that either can glorify God. When we make either the answer to our need, we miss the real answer, Jesus. Like we sang earlier, you're all I need. As I grow older, 
the list of my loved ones already in heaven grows. So many dear friends, fellow elders, my parents and grandparents already home with Jesus. Some seem to have died before their time and yet we know our times are in God's hands. Life seems so long and yet in other ways it seems so short. These 69 years have quite a story of God's faithfulness and his love despite my many failings, but I know that Jesus went to prepare a place for us. Amen? I know those who've gone before me are already there and will be greeting me when my graduation comes. Hallelujah. And I hope you have that same assurance based on what Jesus has done for you. And I know that bright land to which I go will have no sin, no misunderstandings, no vile persons with hidden agendas. All will be light and love. So lay up your treasures in heaven's there, my friends. There's no better investment for where your treasure is. There will your heart be also. And my heart is with my groom. He's the only one who can satisfy the longings of our hearts. Amen. Amen. We're going to have a closing song, and then I'll give the benediction. <laughs>